this is what we're going to do. We're going to jump right in this morning, but I also want to um, open in a word of prayer um, simply because uh, the, the, the direction that we're going to go this morning um, is a little uneasy for some of you. It's a little uneasy for even me um, as, a, as a preaching pastor. The content of this morning um, is going to be raw and real and deep. And I just want to ask that you would, for those of you who pray regularly, I want to ask for your intercessory prayers throughout the message this morning, simply because the last 72 hours of my life have probably been some of the most uh, intense in terms of spiritual warfare. And I share that with openness and, and being forthcoming with you and transparent with you, because whenever you try to prepare um, a, a topic or a message on the topic of spiritual warfare, the enemy hates to be revealed. And the enemy hates to be called out. And so you will experience the very thing you are learning to teach other people, you're going to experience yourself. And so the last 72 hours have revealed to me just how much the enemy doesn't want to be talked about and just how much he doesn't want the solution to be talked about either. And so this morning, as we jump into the word of, of God, we're going to just uh, come together as a people and just, and just pray. So Holy Spirit, we call upon your name even now in this place and space and expect that your Holy Spirit will bind and forbid any and all unholy spirits that are trying to make their way into discouragement and disconnection in our people's minds and mine included, Lord. And so we just call upon your name right now, Jesus, to create a place and a space for people to hear you, to respond to you, to hear your saving message of Jesus on the cross his death, and his resurrection from the grave. And so we ask that we would have the courage to suspend all of our agendas, even in this moment, and instead have the courage to hear your words from your scriptures, that we would have an open heart and an open mind, and that we would be the kind of people that would seek your face every day. And I pray that if anyone in this room, Jesus, is, is far from you, doesn't know you, but is here nonetheless, that you would reveal yourself to them in a powerful way, a life-changing, transformative way that they might meet you this morning and have their lives changed forever. There is no such thing as encountering Jesus and your life not being changed, those scales falling off our eyes. And so we just invite your presence. We invite your power. We ask that we would have the humility to seek out and know what you're doing this morning. And God's people said, Amen. So this is Matthew chapter 16. You can power on your Bibles or you can open your paper Bibles. The, the passage will be on the screens to my right and to my left. Uh, and for those of you who love taking notes, I tried this a couple weeks back and I really enjoyed it. So when Pastor Nick was uh, teaching uh, two or three weeks ago, I actually followed the message note uh, feature in our app the first time ever. I was like, hey, that's really cool. This is a really neat feature. And so you'd think that I would have done that before. But <laughs> but I, I preach 30 times a year, so I didn't really have an opportunity to. So I, I invite you, if you're the kind of person who likes to document things and, and keep a record of things, I just invite you to, to follow along in the message notes uh, feature. Uh, it's on the QR code in front of you, and you can keep that forever. So this is Matthew chapter 16. This is starting in verse 13. This is what the word of the living God says. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he, asks, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? 
Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Let's just briefly pause there and acknowledge that when Jesus asked this group of people, who do you say that I am or who are people saying that I am? He's, he's revealing this reality that you, you cannot, we cannot make a true decision about Jesus using a poll. You can't poll a crowd of people to find consensus about Jesus. You'll get a plurality of answers, and often they will be conflicting answers. I want to invite those of you who are in the room this morning to put yourselves in the shoes of the men and women who would have heard Jesus audibly ask them, who are people saying that I am? Who do you say that I am? So if Jesus were in the flesh and asked you, who do you say that I am? I want you to wrestle this morning. What would you say? What would you say? Is Jesus a moral teacher? Is he a, an ethical teacher? Is he, a, is he a, you know, among a grouping of uh, teachers from ancient day that had something positive to add to humanity? Because your answer will dictate your future. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus replied to Simon Peter saying, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. Now listen to verse 18, because this is the theme of this morning's topic. And I tell you that you are Peter, which is kind of funny, because Peter had been like, yes, <laughs> you're acknowledging the obvious. Thank you, Captain, obvious. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, on this metaphorical rock, on this rock, I will build my church. On this metaphorical rock, looking at Peter, I will build my church. Some of us church leaders need to take a pause just for a second there. If you are a Christian leader, if you're a leader in any space, in the marketplace, in your neighborhood, um, if you own a business, if, if you're trying to pastor the people that you've employed, if you, if you're, if you are in ministry in, in any capacity, in any way, it is so tempting that you think that you have the power to build God's church. We can build things. Whether or not it's God's church or not is entirely up to God. And he just looked at Peter and said, I will build my church. Now the next statement is absolutely radical and largely misunderstood by the church in the past several generations. And this is how the second part of verse 18, 18b ends. It says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So Jesus just looked at Peter and said, on this metaphorical rock, looking at Peter, I'm going to build my church. The ESV translation and other translations will render, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What is Jesus saying? Let's talk about the gates of hell momentarily here. The gates of hell has been largely misunderstood. This passage has been largely misunderstood and mistaught for generations because it's often thought that this means that hell is invading the church. But if you consider the mechanism of a gate, you'd understand quickly that a gate is a defensive measure. It's a defense mechanism to keep something out. 
the gates of hell are meant to stop the invasion of the church. Not hell's invasion of the church. You got to understand that the gates of hell are keeping out an advancing force that is so powerful, that is so potent, that Jesus uses this metaphor of a gate. In ancient day, gates were also the epicenter of trade. There was business done at gates, and gates were fortified because it was the primary defensive mechanism for enemies. Once you hit a gate, you've hit a stronghold, you've hit a wall that is very difficult. If they're fortified and high enough, they're very difficult to overcome and prevail over. And Jesus just claimed to Peter and the rest of the disciples that the advancing power of God's church, led by Jesus, will be so forceful, so effective, and so powerful that the gates of hell will not be able to stop the church. Hell will try and stop the church, but hell will fail. Hell will fail because the church is led by Jesus, and Jesus is the all-powerful God of the Bible. And because of the prayers of the people that kick down the gates of hell, the worship of the people of God pounds at the gates of hell, and the sacrificial service of the people of God loosens the hinges on the gates of hell until the once thought fortified gates of hell fail under the forceful advancing pressure of God's church. Hell doesn't have the power or authority to invade the church. The church has the power and authority to invade hell. And gates will not keep it out. This, uh, a weekend ago, a week and a weekend ago, I took my kids to, to Michigan to, to camp, and we went to Lake Michigan, and my three-year-old daughter, Sia, and she's just so short. And so we took her into the, we took her into the, we took her up to the beach, and I could see my three kids, once they saw the beach, and once they saw the sand, and once they saw the waves, there was just like this anticipation in my children's eyes. They were just like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to just like run down the beach and run towards the waves. So trying to slow my children uh, was a little futile. They were just too excited. They were too excited. And so we're like tripping down the sand hills and we're making our way to the water and we're like, trying to hold them back while we're putting on little life jackets because, you know, we're helicopter parents and life jackets and all those things. And we're getting closer and closer to the waves. And my five-year-old daughter, she just runs in and she just crushes through the waves. She's having a good time. And my one-year-old, he's a little apprehensive. He's just playing in, you know, with his feet in the water. But my three-year-old, my three-year-old Sia, she has her life jacket on and she's trying to make her way through, through that first wave. And the wave kind of crashes her, but she doesn't give up and she pushes again. And then the wave kind of crashes her again. She doesn't care. She pushes again. And she keeps making her way through each crash of the wave. If you follow Jesus in any meaningful way in your life, you will feel the opposition of the gate. It will crush you as you advance God's kingdom 
It will crash and crush onto you. But you just keep going and you keep going. Sia was successful in crashing through and crushing through each wave because her father was holding her hand. And you need to understand that if you follow Jesus with your life, you will feel the opposition. You will feel it over and over and over again. But you have a father in heaven who's holding your hand in the process, helping you advance God's kingdom even in the opposition. Now you will feel the opposition, and the opposition does not feel good. But the church of Jesus will advance because it's led by Jesus, and the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the advancing forceful pressure of the people of God. Look at verse 19. Jesus says to Peter, after he promises Peter that on this metaphorical rock, I'm going to build my church and not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail, withstand that advancement of of the church. He says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now it's very important to understand that in the original manuscripts of, of the Bible, there was no grammar. Okay, so Hebrew and Greek, they didn't have grammar. It was only English iterations and derivatives of the original manuscripts that integrated grammar because Americans were just like, hey, we got to make this you know, readable, and that makes perfect sense. It doesn't change the message of the scripture, but it helps the message become more accessible for English readers. So the grammar is actually important. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, semicolon. What is... Jesus about to say. He's about to say, the next thing I'm going to say are the keys. The keys are not some mysterious thing that you have to go on a treasure hunt for that God might only give you if you are spiritual enough. The keys are about the thing that he's about to give you. They're, They're right there. So, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Semicolon, here come the keys. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Boom, there are the keys. This would would have been totally understandable for a Jewish ear. When they would have heard that, they would have heard a more or less a figure of speech in Jewish culture, because binding and loosing, loosening would have been familiar, a familiar term used by Jewish populations all the time. Whatever was bound was forbidden, and whatever was loosened was permitted. Do you understand? That whatever was bound was forbidden, and whatever was loosened was permitted. Jesus just gave Peter and the group of disciples the keys to facilitate the kingdom of heaven and the advancing power of God's church against the gates of hell. The keys are not supernatural, mysterious, and over-spiritual. They are the authority to bind and forbid in the name of Jesus and to loosen and to permit. The big idea is that you have the keys. You have the keys. If you have trust in Jesus for your salvation, if you love Jesus, 
If you say, yes, Jesus is who he has said he is, he has done what he has claimed he has done, you now have the authority. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You have in you the same power that rose Jesus from the grave now lives in you. It's not your power, but it's the same power on loan to you. You've got the keys. What does that mean? It means that some of you don't know that you have the authority to bind and forbid evil in your life. Some of you, for the first time this morning, need to come into a reality that you have the authority to bind and forbid self-harm in your family of origin. That you have the authority to bind and forbid sexual debauchery. That you have the authority to bind and forbid fear and anxiety and depression and all of these unholy spirits. You have the authority. And you didn't know where the keys were? The keys of the kingdom of heaven and the advancing power of God's church against the gates of hell will not prevail because God's people have the keys. You have the key to bind and forbid. Have any of you ever met depression or anxiety or fear with the authoritative power of binding and forbidding? And you have the key to loosen and permit. It comes with two keys, I guess. Now you have the key to loosen and permit purity and unity and mental health. Now, some of you out there are like, Luke, 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 you're not really saying that I shouldn't go to the clinician, that I shouldn't get clinical help for this mental health issue, or if I, you know, I shouldn't get this treatment. That's not what I'm saying at all. That's not what I'm saying at all. And often, many times, God uses those measures to fulfill his promise of healing. I'm not saying that at all. But you do have the keys. You have the keys to bind and forbid, loosen and permit. And the violent and forceful advancement of God's church does not politely knock on the doors of hell. It kicks the gates down. It pushes back darkness and overwhelms the opposition. What does that mean for some of you? It means that some of you in your homes right now have symbols of evil that need to be thrown away. You are dabbling with darkness. You are flirting with evil. Throw any symbols of evil away in the garbage. They are promoting something that your heart has been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit doesn't want that symbol around him. If you have evil in your home, if you have evil in your heart, if you are flirting with evil in your own heart, you are dabbling with darkness in some peripheral way. Well, I'm not fully engaged in that thing. I'm just kind of flirting with that thing. You're dabbling in the darkness. You have the authority to bind and forbid that darkness from being around you. You've got the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You've got the keys of the advancing power of God's church. Luke, that's legalistic. That's legalistic. It's, it's only legalistic if you do it for the wrong reasons. You'll be doing it for the right reasons. 
You'll be loosening and permitting purity in your home and in your heart, in unity and mental health. That's what you'll be doing. I mean, after all, Ephesians 3.10 says this, that the church is the manifold wisdom of God to all of the principalities and rulers in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? What is Paul saying in Ephesians 3.10 when he says that the church is the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and the rulers in the heavenly, heavenly places? He is saying that God's wisdom and God's power is so supreme that when he looks at the spiritual realm of darkness and, and points out the rulers and authorities and the principalities in that spiritual realm, he points to his own wisdom, his own power, and his own supremacy by pointing to the church and saying, you want to see how wise I am, how powerful I am, how good I am, how supreme I am? Look at my church. Look at my church. It's the manifold wisdom. It's the pinnacle of my genius. It's the pinnacle of my supremacy. Look at the church. There is a war raging in the spiritual realms between the rulers of principalities and darkness and the rulers and the principalities of goodness. And God points to the advancement and the effectiveness of his church as proof of his superiority and wisdom. I would encourage all of you to understand that when you dabble in the darkness, you are playing to the enemy's team. That every time you flirt with darkness, every time you entertain darkness, every single time you, you allow evil into your life in any measure, you're more or less voting for a team that intends for your harm. Daniel Henderson, author and pastor, says, our real problem is not pervading darkness, but a failing light. Light always dispels darkness. I know that some of you are fighting a battle in your life right now that, that others know nothing about. I know that battle is dark. I know that some of you are battling a mental health issue of some kind or a physical health issue of some kind, uh, a fragmentation of your family unit. That's a battle. I know that some of you are battling right now uh, stressors at your workplace. I know that's a real stressor too. I know that there are financial battles that some of you are engaged in today that you're trying to resolve. I know that there are marriages right now where you're just, you're just, just hanging on. You're just hanging on. And, and all of these battles, all of these battles are real. And they can feel dark and they can feel hopeless. And you might be asking yourself, did I do something to allow this, this battle into my life? And the answer is, I don't know. But what we do know from God's word is that there is a real spiritual battle happening in a realm that you and I don't get to put our eyes on that often. There is a real realm, a non-material realm that you and I have no access to, a behind-the-curtains kind of reality, that there is a spiritual war being waged by Satan. And that war is being waged against God because Satan got power hungry for God's job. I mean, I almost like humorously wonder if God's like, boy, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. Like, and that's exactly what God intends to do. 
In Genesis 3.15, it's promised that the seed of the woman will eventually crush the head of the serpent. It's promised early that the enemy is going to lose. He has already lost that war, and he is not yet dead. But there will be a day where the enemy is going to be gone. And that is the day that you and I can look forward to. That is the day that we can hope in. The day that the enemy is no longer existing in that spiritual realm, and we don't suffer from sin, from darkness, from being attacked in a spiritual kind of way. The only thing that the enemy hates more than you is God. So the battle is actually not against you. The battle is against God. That war between Satan and God is very uneven because God is supreme and brought Satan into the world. He's a fallen angel. He had free will and he fell and he wanted God's job. And God's like, you ain't going to get my job and you're going down. Now, there's been this like weird kind of new age thing called uh, Satan's sympathizers. I just want to address this really fast for anyone who's been asking about this. We cannot sympathize with a non-human creature. We cannot, it's impossible for the human condition, the human frame, the human spirit to sympathize with a spirit that is so unlike ours. Like you can say that you sympathize sympathize with Satan all day, but Satan has tricked you into thinking that. You cannot sympathize with a non-human spirit. He's so different. He's a creature totally unlike us, completely different from us, intended to worship God, but fell and wanted God's job instead. That's what Job says. This, This battle that you are facing today in your marriage, in your finances, Some of you right now are having some of the most horrific dreams of your life. I I know it because you tell me. I know that some of you right now are struggling so deeply with with darkness that there there are thoughts going through your head that you can't imagine or why they're there. You're totally shocked. Why am I thinking this? Why am I feeling these feelings? There's these battles that you are you are facing. And, And sometimes it is our flesh, and then other times it is our foe. And the foe of the enemy is, is very real. Here's what I want you to understand. All the earthly battles you are fighting today are a result of a spiritual war Satan is waging. You are feeling the collateral damage of a spiritual war being waged in a spiritual realm you can't see. Do you understand that gimmicky principles will not push the enemy back? Do you understand that the battle you are facing today is a collateral damage consequence of a war Satan is waging against God. It is very real. That is why some of what you experience is described like spiritual warfare. Whenever someone experiences that darkness or that evil or that battle, I've got this battle in my finances. It seems like no matter what I do, this. I've got this battle in my marriage. It seems like no matter what I do, this. And at some point, you just, I just feel like it's spiritual warfare. It's because it is spiritual warfare. And you are feeling in your life the collateral consequence of a war being waged in a spiritual realm. Now that you understand that, I want to give you examples of spiritual warfare. Number one is fatigue. Fatigue. Isaiah 40, 27 through 29. 
Some of you are so exhausted and spent and completely uh, toasted from life. Fatigue is an absolute sure sign of spiritual warfare. Uh, Anxiety, ongoing, unresolved anxiety is a sure sign of spiritual warfare. Stress, unchecked um, stress in perpetuity, ongoing stress is a sign of spiritual warfare. Temptation, temptation is a sign of spiritual warfare. Fear, fear is the surest sign of spiritual warfare. Despair, lies, revenge. All of these are examples of unholy spirits. These are all unholy spirits that have made their way into your everyday. They have made their way into your everyday and have manifested themselves in a battle you are facing. And you are living this battle and you are trying to fight this battle. And yes, I'm a absolute one. I mean, I'm married to a shrink. So like I'm a big, big fan of like therapy and mental health and all the things you'll be. I'm the first one to tell you, you got to go see a therapist. Like that'll be me. I'm going to go tell you to go see a therapist. But a therapist without Jesus is just self-help. Do you understand? It is so important for you to understand that your battle that you are faced in today, this battle that you feel like is insurmountable, this battle that you feel like is never going to go away, that thing that keeps you up late at night, that gives you horrible dreams, the thing that causes discord in your marriage, discord between you and your children, discord in your finances, these are all unholy spirits of fear and temptation and revenge and fatigue and anxiety and stress. What is the solution to an unholy spirit? It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bathing you and washing you and redeeming you and bringing you back to life and allowing the Holy Spirit into your heart, into your mind, into your eyes, into your ears, that you are a person of the word, a person of prayer. You will only be able to engage in your battle to the extent you allow the Holy Spirit into your life. And if you are trying to fight in your battle without the Holy Spirit, you will continue down the road you are currently on and it will get worse and it will get worse and it will get worse. And my heart breaks for some of you that are in a perpetual battle that's just unresolved and and unfinished. And like I said earlier, the last 72 hours of my life have been uh, filled with, with lies. And it's amazing. It's amazing how the enemy plays the battle in the battlefield of your mind. And that's where it starts. And, and for all of you who can resonate with that, who, who are susceptible to anxiety, who are susceptible to stress, who are susceptible to these unholy spirits of fear and revenge and despair, You must understand that if you try to fight that battle without Jesus, it's just going to be more of the same and more worse. I know that the battle you are in right now feels like it's never going to go away. But the good news of Jesus is that he was victorious on a cross that was once looked at as a symbol of of death and a symbol of punishment and is now a symbol of for the Christians now, a symbol of life and hope. And I know that you feel like you're never going to get past the battle you're in today. And I'm telling you, in the power, in the name of Jesus Christ, you will. 
you will. And believing and trusting in Jesus, being able to answer him when he says, who do you say that I am? If some of you right now are unconfident with that answer, get confident today. Ephesians 6.10 gives us the solution. Ephesians 6.10 gives us the play of how followers of Jesus can withstand the battle that you are in. Remember, it's a battle that you're in, but it's indicative of a spiritual war you can't see, right? How do we withstand that ongoing battle and how do we find victory? Look at Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. And I'm going to ask you to play along here with me. So it says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can make your what? Stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We've talked about that, right? But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Remember, your battle is indicative of a spiritual war being waged you can't see. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to what? Stand your ground. And after you have done everything to what? Stand. Verse 14. Stand. Firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Four times in eight verses, it says stand. Four times in eight verses, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, stand. What is Paul saying? He's saying, suit up and stand firm. And we are the kind of people that suit up and charge in. And we have done ourselves such a disservice We have harmed ourselves in so many unnecessary ways by being a people who try to take the offensive measure out of God's hand. That we are suiting up and charging in, hoping that we have the offensive measure for our own battle. It says, suit up and stand firm. Four times in this passage, it says stand. It says nothing about running into battle. All armor is defensive measures. It was a bow and arrow in that time that was an offensive measure. The Bible says stand, not charge. We've watched too many war videos, too many war movies. Some of you need to stop charging at your battle as if you have the singular authority to claim victory over it. Some of you need to stop charging and start standing. God calls you to stand firm, putting on the full armor of God so that we can witness the advancing and forceful power of God's church against the gates of hell. God's church will prevail. His word promises 
whether he uses this church, the church down the road, the church on the other side of the globe, God will build his church by his own power. The question is, do you want to be a part of that or not? Do you want to be a part of God's plan to push in to the darkness, overwhelm the evil, so that God's people would increase in numbers, so that the lost would be saved, so that the found would be discipled and sent out onto mission? The whole armor of God is putting on the full armor of righteousness, of faith, being a person who knows how to access, use, and wield the word of God. The shield of righteousness to defend against the enemy's lying arrows that come at you every single day. At the end of David's very long life, he reflects back in what is now the most famous passage in all of the Psalter, which is Psalm 23. And Psalm 23 is awesome. Psalm 23 is a beautiful a beautiful psalm. And some of you know it back to front. I'm going to teach you Psalm 23 from a new light. I'm going to give you a little history on Psalm 23. When David got to the end of his life after being a king, he writes Psalm 23 as a reflection of when he was a young shepherd boy. Now, shepherds in that time, what they would do is they would take their cattle their flock of goats, the flock of sheep, or whatever else they were responsible for taking care of, and they would graze them all day. But at nighttime, the shepherd would bring the cattle, the sheep, the goats, the whatever they were grazing, into a natural outcropping or a natural fencing made by rocks. And that way, when they, the shepherds made the sheep lay down in those green pastures, uh, they were protected by that natural outcropping, that natural uh, God made a stone fence or, or whatever hillside or cave that they were protected in from that night's possible wolves, coyotes, or even thieves. Then that shepherd would take oil and they'd put it on the heads of cattle, on the heads of sheep, on the heads of goats, on their horns, on their, on their eyes, on their heads, on their mouth, because oil, this has been true for generations and generations. is a natural bug dope. It, it's a deterrent from mosquitoes and bugs and gnats and nasty things like that. Uh, my wife, she, she puts uh, peppermint oil on my ankles and the kids' ankles when we go for a hike, and it's a natural, uh, natural bug dope. And then the shepherd would come up to the sheep, and he'd fill this little uh, uh, a farmer's cup, really, and come up to each individual sheep and make sure they had a drink of water before they rested that night. This was the only way that sheep, goats, cattle, would sleep soundly. Then the shepherd would lay himself out a table. Uh, it could have been a rock. It could have been like a flat rock. It could have been just on the desert floor. And they put up maybe a traveling blanket where they'd pull out some salt and some bread and ultimately dine while staying alert most of the evening, watching the sheep sleep, watching the goats, watching the cattle sleep, making sure that they were able to respond quickly if a coyote, if a wolf, or if a thief were to try to interrupt the sleep of those sheep. So what is David saying in Psalm 23 about the nature of God? At the end of his life, King David ultimately reflects back and says, I get it. I get it. All of the things that I did for my cattle and for my sheep and for my goats when I was a shepherd, I get it now. God, you do for me.
So in light of that history, let's read Psalm 23 so you understand. Verse one, the Lord is my shepherd. Let's start over. I want to emphasize King David's ownership. It, It might mean something new to you if I emphasize it like this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the dark, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. King David is saying, all the things that I did for these sheep, all the things that I did for these cattle, all the things that I did for these goats, I get it, I get it, I get it. You do those things for me. Your battle is ready for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit when you lie down in green pastures. Your job is not to charge. That is the collective power of the Holy Spirit moving his church ever increasingly, advancing the kingdom of God, pushing back at the gates of hell, pushing them over so hell gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Evil gets shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And we are all collectively a part of that plan for the Holy Spirit to move his church in that direction. But you are in a battle right now and you think that you have to fight in that battle. And the enemy has duped you and tricked you into thinking that you can fight in a battle that only God can fight in. And God is fighting on your behalf because he is the shepherd that is watching us sleep soundly, who's anointing our head with oil, who's keeping the bugs and the flies and the mosquitoes and the distractions and and the evil away from our mind and away from our eyes and away from our mouth. Some of you need to know for the first time this morning that in the presence of your shepherd, Jesus, you can sleep soundly. You can rest easy. Even in the midst of your battle, you can put on the full armor of God and lay down. What does that say? A sheep that is sleeping, a goat, a cow that is sleeping, trusts their shepherd to protect them. Do you trust Jesus today? Do you trust him to protect you? Do you trust him to anoint your head with oil? Do you trust him to keep you from the thieves, from the wolves? Do you trust him to overlook you? Do you trust him to look over you while you rest in his presence? Do you trust him enough for you to put down your bow and arrow, not part of the armor of God? You do not have to have an offensive measure in your battle. You only have to have on the armor of God, the defensive measures, and then lay down in green pastures, trusting your shepherd to oversee you, to keep you, to keep you safe, to keep you protected. You are in a spiritual battle because there is a spiritual war being waged. And God is inviting all of us to trust him enough to allow him to fight our battles on our behalf because he is going to win this war. 
game, set, match. It's over. It's over. God is going to win. God has won, which means that your battle ultimately has a victory at the end. And today is the day. Today could be the day that for the first time you believe that's possible. That you maybe believe in the deepest part of your heart that this battle that keeps going on and on and on and on, maybe you need to change your tactics and instead of fighting, start resting. Instead of taking up the bow and arrow and charging in, you put on the full armor of God and rest and lay down in green pastures and sleep and allow the shepherd to protect you. So here's my invitation for all of you today. My invitation is for any of you this morning that would like to be anointed with oil for protection. Uh, two times and three times in scripture, anointing is used. It's used, the anointing for the chosen ones of Christ, it's being used for healing and James is being used for protection in Psalm 23. And so for any of you this morning that feel like you are in the battle of a lifetime, in the battlefield, it's probably your mind. If you want a battle for, of a lifetime, I want to invite you. The prayer team will be up to the right, right here, uh, to the right of the stage here, uh, my right. They'll also be in the prayer room, but you can easily find them. They want to anoint your heads with oil uh, out of a symbolic obedience to scripture uh, for protection and an acknowledgement that God is the shepherd who protects that God is the shepherd who brings you a cup of water, that God is the shepherd who anoints your head with oil, that God is the shepherd who creates an outcropping, a natural protection against the evil one, against the wolves, against the, the thieves. Okay, that's my first invitation for anyone who wants to be anointed with protection this morning. My second invitation is for anyone who wants to take the step of faith of baptism. We're, this morning, we're gonna baptize a few kids, but the baptistry will remain open because some of you this morning should need to take that step of faith. Because you can confidently in your heart say that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. I, like Peter, have the confidence to look at Christ and say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, the living Son of God. Your battle has a victory at the end of it. Lay down your bow and arrow of offensive measure. Put on the full armor of God and rest in your shepherd's presence. Okay? So living God, we call upon your name even now, trusting that your word does not return void, trusting that your spirit has the power and authority to speak truth into our hearts, to speak truth into our minds, that each one of us is fighting a battle right now, and that battle is indicative of a spiritual war being waged in a heavenly spiritual realm we know not much about. And so, Father, we just want to uh, ask for your power to be in the room this morning. And I just want to say, Lord Jesus, would you please move anybody who's fighting the battle of their lifetime this morning? Would you move them to be anointed with oil for protection, for protection in the midst of that battle? God, give everyone the courage to lie down in a green pasture, trusting their shepherd, trusting you enough to look over them, to look after them, to take care of them, to protect them that you are the kind of God who fights our battles on our behalf. We know that's you. And God, I pray that if there's anyone on the fence this morning about who you are as the Messiah, that they would just confidently make that decision in their heart. They would get baptized. There is a private bathroom with a change of clothes, a warm baptistry. I just want to invite Lord Jesus, would you just move any, anyone into the baptistry this morning that wants to take that step of faith? We trust you. We love you. We thank you for fighting our battles on our behalf. We are ready for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit in the midst of our battle. And we know that that outpouring will come when we just lie down. In the name of Jesus, we said.